Anthology presents Professor Challenger at the Precipice of Oblivion by Robert Thomas and Darren Freebury Jones, based on characters created by Arthur Conan Doyle. Part 3 Inconvenience on the Orient Express. Listeners, I'm glad you're still with me, and even more glad that I'm still with you. No doubt you'll recall that, having been warned by the ghost of an old colleague, Professor Challenger and I ventured through a secret passageway into the dread dungeons beneath the creepy Grunwald Castle, where Lady Milieu had set up a listening post to communicate with the evil Heinrich von Heinrich, who himself was on a quest for that elusive Fountain of Youth. You'll also recall that, having suffered through more exposition about Challenger's missing follicles and his blood feud with the dastardly little German, we discovered a map to von Heimlich's secret base, and were about to escape the castle and head to Bavaria so that Challenger could recover said disintegrated hair follicles, when von Heimlich himself appeared and attacked us in a zeppelin. We were plunged into darkness as gunfire chattered about us, crashing our escape car and leaving us strewn amongst the ruins of the smouldering Phantom Three Rolls Royce. Quick! This way, Peregrine! Challenger shook the life back into me. I had been unconscious for mere seconds, but it felt like waking from an eternal slumber. I was dazed and confused. Oh, goodness, I'm so dazed and confused. Could I just have another few minutes in bed? Unless your ideal mattress is the wreckage of a luxury car, Peregrine, I would thoroughly discourage it. At length, I dragged myself to my feet. I was concerned about Daisy McFarlane, having not seen her since being momentarily knocked unconscious. It would be a pity if the American agent had been charred to death. She was, after all, very attractive. Oh, right. Where is Daisy? Is she still alive? I don't know. I can't see her. She must have been thrown from the wreckage of the car. Immolated, perhaps. We need to keep moving. I spotted her prone body a few feet away, covered slightly by the remains of the fern tree that we had decapitated as we deroded. She looked decidedly uncrispy and appeared to be breathing, so I thought it best to leave her to it. After all, she was an American, and I have made my feelings about Americans perfectly clear and at length. Branches snagged at our skins, and I lost my footing on several occasions as the Gatling guns barked in the distance. We travelled deep, deep into the forest, putting plenty of distance between us and von Heimlich's incessant cackling over the Zeppelin loudspeaker, which grew ever quieter, until we heard nothing at all but the howl of the wind through the thick trunks of the trees. Days passed as we hiked through wilderness, occasionally feasting on the odd hair which Challenger snared with his bare hands. Another hair? This should keep us going for a bit longer, Peregrine. Oh, delicious. I cannot wait. You sound displeased. If you're going to be like that, you shan't have any hair at all. We'll have something in common, then. What did you just say? It's just that this forest seems to grow hairs by the dozen. It is a shame the same cannot be said for you, Professor. Ha! Ha! 
Challenger had a knack for creating fire, with only twigs or small stones at his disposal. Once again, flames seemed to materialize out of nowhere. He roasted the hare, passing me a foot when it was fully cooked, and feasting on the remainder of the rodent himself. Challenger wasn't one to speak about his personal life, but given that we were trapped in this labyrinthine forest and so had time on our hands, and given that we could very well die here, I ventured to ask him some questions. Professor, do you have any children? I have a daughter. I see. How old is she? She must be about your age. Ah. Is she married? Her partner died about ten years ago. Do you think I might make for a suitable- Oh, for God's sake, Peregrine! If you were to ever so much as speak to my darling Enid, I would inflict such damage on your backside that you would spend the remainder of your career as a human glove puppet. Very well, then. Besides, you are no wooer. I overestimated your ability to get close to Lady Milieu, it seems. If only I had my hair! I am powerless without it, Peregrine. When I possessed my shaggy mane, I was known to massacre entire armies with the jawbone of a donkey. I once beat a nymphomaniacal baboon to death, armed with just a frankfurter sausage. I could rule the asp of Cleopatra herself. But now, I fear so much as going into a dungeon by myself. I have lost my spunk. It is hopeless. I'd say you're being harsh on yourself. You did save me from the Zeppelin. After all, that was a close shave. Challenger ran a hand across his jowled and ham-shaped lower face, now bereft of its glorious mane. Stop taking the piddle, Perry! Do you think we'll ever find a way out of this forest? We've been travelling for so long. I'm certain I've seen the same tree at least five times. But we must live in hope. I guess you could say we're not out of the woods yet, eh, Challenger? Aha! Shut up, Peregrine. The further we travelled, the worse our predicament became, it seemed. Deep into the dark and gloomy woods, there were no living creatures for us to eat. Even the trees seemed dead, petrified in a downcast montage. Their tangled branches admitting no light from the heavens. We were getting desperately hungry, growing fainter with each squidgy step we took. We're going to die, aren't we, Challenger? Yes. That is a physiological fact, old boy. Is mud edible, Professor? I do hope so. Yes, I think I'll have some mud. I'll pretend that it's chocolate. Yummy, muddy chocolate with sprinkles. Those are prehistoric rabbit droppings, Peregrine. Not sprinkles. I was certain I was hallucinating, as a wretch, naked save for a carefully placed bay leaf, rustled out of the bush and crooked a finger at us. Please help poor Tom. Poor Tom is a cold. What a ghastly looking chap. How long have you been in these woods, dear fellow? Poor Tom has fought off seven winters under the shade of these melancholy bows. Poor Tom's hungry. Please help poor Tom. Despite our predicament, my heart sank at the sight of this shivering wretch, his beard matted with grime, his eyes spilling icy tears. I felt an overwhelming urge to help him, and in an instant, charity glowed warmly in my breast. Quick! 
help me tie him up, Peregrine. To my abject horror, Challenger had clubbed the poor fellow over the head with the bark of a dying tree, rendering him unconscious. This should keep us going for a few more days. Professor, what on earth are you doing? We are in desperate straits, Peregrine. We must resort to cannibalism, I'm afraid. Before Challenger finished speaking, I spotted a slip of paper between poor Tam's twitching fingers. I plucked it from his grasp. Look, Challenger, the Moonraker Inn seems to be a hotel menu of some sorts. We can't be far off at all. Wait, what are you doing with his forearm? Just a little snack. For the road. Well, I've got good news, Challenger. The road is right there, leading to that building in the distance with all the lights on. I can't believe we didn't see this before. How fortuitous. Come on, Challenger. That must be the Moonraker. Certainly. We began to trudge in the moonlight trail, the inviting, glowing lights of the Moonraker in ahead of us, only a kiss away, like a smile I'd seen in a thousand dreams. You weren't really suggesting that we eat that homeless chap, were you? Of course not. It was a, uh, a test. Good. And did I pass? With flying colours, Peregrine. Oh, thank goodness. We are saved. Hold your kangaroos, Peregrine. We're not out of the woods yet. Didn't I make that exact joke? No time to dilly-dally, old boy. Come on! We reached the Moonraker a small building set amongst the impressive desolation of the moors. A portly woman answered at the third knock upon the door, peering out at us over the top of her thin, wire-framed spectacles. Good evening, gentlemen. Hey, may I help? Hello, my name is Philip Peregrine, and this is Professor George Edward Challenger. We've just escaped from Heinrich von Heimlich and his death-dealing Zeppelin, and we were hoping that we might pop in for a quick bath and a bite to eat before we head off to Bavaria to get the professor's hair back. Poor Tam sent us. Oh dear. That bear coming. Mr. Hobbs? Two more inmates are going in. Well, I'm not sure I'd describe us as mates, uh, close acquaintances, really. Pilatam! Where are you? Why do you hide? Peregrine, I rather think... Despite Challenger's alarm, I could sense that food was near and could smell the luscious scent of chicken stew. We were presented with a fresh set of pyjamas and taken through to a dining room at the back of the house. Gosh, it isn't Scotland quaint, Challenger. Look, everyone here is wearing the same set of pyjamas. I don't think that this is a normal bed and breakfast, Peregrine. And why not? Well, there are a few things that give it away. The first would be the pyjamas. You mean these lovely striped pyjamas that Mrs. Hobbs has let us borrow? Yes, and also the fact that this is very, 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 very... Clearly an asylum for the insane. What? Why on earth would you think that? It said as much on a sign over the entrance. The Moonraker Inn. The Moonraker Institute for the Criminally Insane. Ah, I seem to have missed that. I did find it curious when one of the residents was using my thumb as a phone receiver earlier. I thought he was just being friendly. This is quite a cliffhanger of a predicament, isn't it? I do wonder sometimes, Peregrine. If I should leave you here, finish your stew, we're getting out.
The next few hours passed by in a bit of a blur. Challenger befriended a large number of the asylum inmates, including a rather quiet and subdued Native American fellow. Mrs. Hobbs, it turned out, was rather dastardly, and she and Challenger were at odds, let me tell you. Eventually, something happened that caused the Native American fellow to throw a bin out of a window or something, and we escaped in Mrs. Hobbs' car. I must say that anyone intending to spend a long weekend in Scotland would be best to avoid the Moonraker. Not only was the decor ugly, dated, and very specific to a particular interest of the hostess, but it was dash difficult to check out of. The food, however, was top-notch. I don't know how we did it, but after what seemed like an eternal voyage, we finally found ourselves standing on a platform, the penultimate step on our quest to discover von Heinrich's secret lair. We prepared to board the Orient Express, also known as the Lightning Luxury Train. This locomotive, with its blue and gold carts and the inviting fingers of smoke beckoning towards us, really did smack of luxury. Ouch! Get a move on, Peregrine! Out of the corner of my eye, I was sure that I saw a woman rushing along the platform towards us. She seemed vaguely familiar. I peered towards her, squinting my eyes. Could it be? Was it? Stop dawdling, Peregrine! We need to get aboard! No matter, it probably wasn't important. Aboard, I was struck by the assortment of lowlives travelling with us. A dastardly American in a pinstripe suit who kept looking about him with nervous, shifty eyes. An ancient Russian princess who made the mummy pharaoh I'd encountered on a previous adventure look like a toddler. And a world-famous detective with a huge belly and a waxed rat gnawing on his upper lip. Despite the preposterous appearance of the detective's moustache, Challenger kept darting envious glances his way. I believe the detective was French. I am. Belgium, mon ami. Yes, I'm pretty certain he was French. I couldn't understand a word he was saying, frankly. Merde. Like I said. That evening, Challenger and I sat down for a delicious meal. I'll have a smoked red herring and a bottle of Grichetto, please. Very good, sir. The usual, please. You have not dined with us before, sir. You just can't get the service these days. Steak and chips, please, and a bottle of Merlot. Well done, sir. No need to congratulate me, you condescending monkey. The sooner we get off this sardine can on rails, the better, Peregrine. The scent of smoke and sweat in this carriage is nauseating. I think it's all rather wonderful, Challenger. Though I am sick of the sight of Americans. That chap looked very shifty in particular. That pinstriped fellow? Yes, Mr. Ratcrap, I think I overheard someone call him. Mr. Ratcrap eyed me suspiciously. I just hope there are no disruptions on our journey. It'll be nice to relax for a bit. The evening passed by without any distractions, and I had the best night's sleep I'd had in days as the train traversed through snow-peaked mountains. Unfortunately, the next morning it turned out that Mr. Ratcrap had been violently murdered while sleeping in his cabin. Thank goodness for the convenience of having a world-famous detective on board. I watched, fascinated, as he interrogated each of the passengers one by one throughout the day, and though I couldn't understand anything he said, I thought it worth banking events for a future article. 
Murder on the Orient Express would no doubt make for a tawdry headline, but I had a feeling that readers would be interested, and I was already forming a highly original storyline in my head. Unfortunately, I and the Professor also found ourselves being questioned, the detective pacing up and down on his stumpy legs, windmilling his arms extravagantly, his belly wobbling before him. Monsieur Peregrine, Somerset Diners overheard you saying you despised Americans. A motive for murder, perhaps. My name is Philip. Peregrine, I speak only English. Monsieur Challenger, are you this man's cadder? Something like that. This is renowned adventurer George Edward Challenger. Can you speak English even a little, petit pois? I see he does not have the mental capacity to commit murder. You are dismissed, Ami. Disappointed by the detective's inability to string even the most basic English sentence together, I went for a jaunt around the train. It was a pleasant hour, spent people watching, but my heart filled with dread as I saw a familiar figure exiting one of the vintage carriages. It was the man named Jesse who looked like a grizzly bear that had fought its way into a dinner jacket. I quickly retreated out of sight, but I was certain that those blood-red eyes had spotted me. I rapped my knuckles against Challenger's cabin door, and I was about to offer a flurry of words when I noticed that the train had stopped moving. In fact, I couldn't recall its moving in the last half hour. Peregrine, there you are! It's a ruddy disaster, just as I anticipated. What is Challenger? We are stuck in a snowbank. It could be hours before we get moving again. I have more bad news, I'm afraid. Go on. There's yet another American on board. You really must get over your Americanophobia, Peregrine. It's curious, this particular American dined with me on the train to Aberdeen. He was also aboard the Caledonian Sleeper. He was? What are the chances, eh? What's his name? I think he's called Jesse Cowpoke. Describe his disposition for me. I guess you could say he is the strong, silent type. Any distinguishing features? Oh, it's nothing really, but he has blood-red eyes. Hang about. Go on. Do you think there's an optician on board who could help him? We must heed Malone's warning! Goodness, surely you don't think he is the man with the red eye? It'd be quite the coincidence if he wasn't. Ah, you're being silly, Professor. After all, this man has two red eyes, not one. You are being painfully exact. Right, we need to get off this train. Follow me! He gripped me by the ear and tugged me through the locomotive. However, just as we were about to disembark, the ghastly American with the worst case of conjunctivitis I'd ever seen appeared out of nowhere and launched his huge frame at the professor. I was about to help him when I noticed that the world-famous detective had assembled all of the other passengers in the dining car and was expounding on who had murdered Mr. Ratcrip. Oh, goody! I have been stupid! Ah, so stupid! 
I have been looking at this case backwards. I realize now that rather than concentrating on a single individual as a suspect, we must think in terms of a, 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 a plurality of culprits. The hour is upon us. It is time to reveal exactly who was responsible for this bloody deed. I took a seat and watched events unfold, dipping my fingers into a bowl of crisps that had been left at the table. Some might say that Colonel Oxfield, having lost both his arms in Dobruja, is unlikely to have stabbed a victim repeatedly with a butter knife. But I say... The detective was interrupted by the noise of glass splintering as the man with the red eyes propelled Challenger out of a window. Anyway, as I was saying... Help me, Peregrine! Challenger's head bounced off one of the dining car windows. I pretended not to see his enormous skull locked between the even more enormous biceps of the mysterious American. All eyes in the dining car turned towards me, however. Do go on. Some people also might say that an octogenarian Russian princess who cannot eat soup unassisted might struggle to throttle a, 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 a middle-aged man to his death with her bare hands. But I say... There was a huge thud on the roof of the carriage. Challenger and his assailant were now exchanging blows, coarse flakes of snow stinging their eyes, I imagine. The Orient Express suddenly hissed, belched, and was once again on the move. Challenger fell backwards, his elephantine frame causing the whole train to rock as it picked up speed and was soon chuntering through the mountains. Chandeliers danced above us, and the walls of the dining car shivered. Who are you, you cad? I feel your name. Is Hans Gruber. Und I kill you now, yeah? Challenger was sent sprawling across the roof of the train as Hans Gruber's boot collided with his chin. The weather was truly dreadful, and the mountains themselves trembled in the storm, discharging bodies of ice and rock. Challenger battered away one of these missiles and launched himself headfirst at Gruber. At least, I suppose he did. Harry, could really do with a hand up here. I caught sight of Challenger's face swinging along the full length of the carriage as Gruber dangled him upside down. I pretended not to notice. Challenger was anyway soon standing upright on the roof once more, the wind buffeting him and his opponent, tearing at their clothes and colossal icy fingers, I guess. The train, however, was suddenly caught in yet another snowdrift, this one even higher than the last, and as it jerked and shuddered to a standstill, Gruber launched himself backwards, descending into an all-encompassing blanket of mist, never to be seen again. I imagined that he would die hard on the frozen plains around us. I craned my neck to hear the detective better. I can now reveal that the murderer is... Come on, Peregrine, let's go! I can't bear to be without my beloved rug a moment longer. We'll just need to make the rest of the journey on foot. Challenger ushered me out of the locomotive and into the freezing conditions. We began our hike through the mountains, and I lamented the fact that I'd never discovered who murdered Mr. Ratcrap. 
It was deadly cold as we descended the mountain. Although the map challenger balled up and his meaty fist was pointing us in the right direction, the dwindling temperatures were making me feel despondent, even cynical. I can't take this anymore, challenger. I can't feel my toes. They're attached to your feet, Peregrine. I can't feel my buttocks. My foot will be attached to that if you don't stop your whining. We are very nearly there. I can practically feel my roots squirming for freedom. I looked down and the world swam. We were very high indeed, a land of mist orbiting us. There was no going back now. I guess if we're nearly there, I can find some dregs of fortitude, Professor, so long as there are no more inconveniences. Professor Challenger! I kill you to death now! Yeah. Hans Gruber stared up at us, his fierce red eyes providing a severe contrast to the eternal white hemming us in. He clutched a revolver in his paw, which he aimed at us, and was about to fire when Challenger let out the most incredible roar I'd ever heard. <laughs> Gazing up at Challenger, I was struck by the fact that he looked and sounded like an extremely irate, gigantic, baritone baby in that moment. Suddenly, the mountain squirmed beneath my grip. The pressure, amplitude of Challenger's banshee-like cry had caused a snowslide. Oh, tight, Peregrine! My eardrums felt like they were about to shatter as a column of ice burst out of the sky, splinters of jagged rocks falling in its wake. Fortunately, the avalanche swooped over our heads, merely peppering my hair and Challenger's baby-like paint. Hans Gruber, however, was not so lucky. He took a full blast of the white stuff right in his face, his arms flailing ineffectively as he descended into yet another all-encompassing blanket of mist, never to be seen again. Once more. He really had managed to die hard this time. I'm tempted, in fact, to say that he would die harder than the first time he had died. Look! There's a blast door inset into the peak, Peregrine! We have made it! We steadied ourselves on a rocky walkway, and Challenger pushed a fat red button. Immediately, the blast door opened with a terrific whooshing noise, and, as I suspected, we found ourselves descending a staircase. Down, down, down we went, the metal railing seemingly interminable. But eventually we were able to activate another door at the end of a service access tunnel and to explore a large whitewash room with copper wires dangling from the ceiling. This is it, Peregrine. Uh, this is what? This is Heinrich von Heimlich's secret base from which his maniacal operation has been unfolded. I'd have seen him as more of a spectacles man. Not monocle, you silly Turdington. The only spectacle is the one you're making of yourself. Now, look at this. He led us over to a great desk on one side of the room. Maps of Iceland. Of course, I should have known. Should have known what? Did I not tell you at any point during our journey here? Tell me what? Not to worry. I shall explain it all to you now. Perhaps you could give an abridged version? Don't you want me to do the voices? Um... Very well. Von Heimlich is obsessed with the journey some 80 years ago of Professor Otto Liedenbrock 
and his nephew Axel into the center of the Earth. What a journey that must have been, to the center of the Earth. Yes. You recall that Axel published an account of their journey? Yes. Have you read it? No. I see. Well, as you may have gathered from the title of his account, Journey to the Center of the Earth, Liedenbrock, his nephew, and their Icelandic guide, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Von Heimlich was obsessed by a letter he had recovered at auction, purportedly from Liedenbrock himself, claiming to have deliberately left out an important section of their account, which he refused to allow his nephew to publish. Oh, yes. Yes. According to this correspondence, somewhere between their arrival in the enormous cavern and their setting sail across the subterranean sea, they encountered a tribe at the center of the earth who lived on the shores of a crystal lake. A lake that could grant eternal life. I believe that von Heimlich is seeking the waters of eternal life. Goodness. Yes, you probably should have elaborated on this sooner. The priority has, and always will be, what I want to do, Peregrine. And at the moment, I want to recover my hair. And look, over there, at the center of the room. He pointed at a huge prism of glass, hanging precariously from the ceiling. Oh, how lovely. What is it? An even larger version of the disintegration machine. Ah, yes. I see. We dashed over to the crystal, looking up into the rainbows refracted from its heart. Very nice. Now... How do we undisintegrate your hair, then? All of a sudden, the prism of glass glowed red, and we could hear what sounded like a thousand locks clicking. Around us, sheets of glass descended, sealing us in a chamber. We pounded on the walls, looking for an escape. We're trapped. Trapped, we're doomed. Doomed! No, we aren't. I'm sure there's a perfectly reasonable... A man strolled in through the chamber. One that I recognized immediately. He was squat, odd-looking, and a man I had seen before and described to you previously. It was Henry Choker, the American man from the train. Ah, Professor Challenger. You have eaten all of my breadcrumbs to find yourself in my trap once more, yeah? Von Heimlich, you bloody bugger. Ah, Choker, we meet again. You've met him? On the train to Aberdeen. Wait a moment. Hans Gruber was the man who sneaked into my compartment. Yeah, he was. Oh. Wait a moment. You didn't think it was pertinent to mention that you'd already met Henry Choker, even though I specifically told you that he was the man who stole my hair and had turned out to be the villainous Heinrich von Heimlich. Well, I, I don't know. We've had a lot going on. A lot going on? Oh, you know, what the... Seance and the dungeon and the Zeppelin and the murder mystery. It's quite a lot for a chap to take in. And yet, despite that, despite all that, you never once mentioned that the name of the man on your train to Aberdeen and the man who I told you stole my hair had alarmingly similar names. Would you believe it if I said I thought it might just be a coincidence? Life is, after all, full of small coincidences. And large coincidences. You really do amaze me, Peregrine. Now listen here, Choker. My name is not Choker. It is... Ah, of course. 
Now listen here, Blue Tack John Winnerack. Heinrich von Heimlich. The very same. Let us out of here at once. No, I shall not. And in mere moments, you and your companion will dissolve and return to an atomic condition. It won't just be your hair that you lose this time, Challenger. It will be your life! It appears that our demands were not going to get us anywhere. I tried a different tactic. You silly German sausage. Let's talk about things first. It isn't remotely courteous to kill us in cold blood like this. My God, man. This isn't the English way. You even sillier Englishman sausages. Clutching onto your outdated values. Your combination of colonial hubris and xenophobia will be your undoing. Like the embers of your burned out empire, you will soon be mere dust in the wake of destiny. I am Scottish. So maybe you could just let me go, Joker. Nein, nein, nein! I'm not sure calling the emergency services will get us out of this one. Now is not the time for you to be proclaiming independence, Challenger. Both you and your partner will perish. Soon you will be teeny tiny atoms, yeah? At least tell us your plans first, like a proper villain should. Where do you intend to go? What exactly do you intend to do? Look, Peregrine, we've already established that. I will leave you to die, yeah? <laughs> he did so, strolling out nonchalantly and leaving two guards to watch the execution. The whole room was bathed in red now, the whitewashed walls seeming to bleed before our very eyes. The click of the lever heralded a horrific whirring noise which tattooed our eardrums. Even Challenger, who I knew to have the courage of a lion look terrified, his massive chin quivering. As we prepared to dissolve into tiny atoms, I prayed that someone or something would rescue us. But I couldn't help feeling that the great hour was really upon us, and that it was the hour of our mortality. Professor Challenger at the Precipice of Oblivion starred Robert Durbin as Philip Peregrine, Darren Freebury-Jones as Professor Challenger, Adam Ankin as The Conductor, Avian Abkadno as The Belgian Detective, and Alex Mann as Heinrich von Heimlich. You've been listening to an anthology production written and directed by Robert Thomas and Darren Freebury-Jones.